Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening. Immersive experiences are overwhelmingly popular as of late, and coming up, City Lights producer Summer Evans takes us inside the Friends experience. Later, the world premiere of a violin concerto by Conrad Tao will be performed by violinist Stefan Jakiv this weekend at the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. Both artists are among today's foremost contemporary classical musicians, and coming up, we'll hear their conversation with City Lights host, Lois Reitzes. First up, this coming Wednesday is the first day of fall, and with the change in seasons comes cooler temperatures, colorful leaves, and of course, Halloween, the perfect combination of fright and fun. For the fright part of that equation, Atlanta is home to one of the most well-known haunted houses in the country, Netherworld. The walk-through dark attraction is filled with terrifying live actors, impressive special effects, and incredible monsters. The spooky destination opens next weekend, and this year marks their 25th anniversary. Ben Armstrong is the co-creator of Netherworld, and he joins me now via Zoom. Hi, Ben. Welcome to City Lights. Thanks so much for having me. Netherworld has become such a part of the Atlanta fabric around Halloween time and 25 years is an incredible run. Can you give us a little bit of backstory as to why you wanted to get into the haunted house business? Oh, boy. It's such a crazy story. Ever since I was a kid, I don't know. I love monsters. I loved Halloween. And it kind of you kind of got in this whole life cycle. I was like, I want to do movies. So I went to, you know, media school. I actually ended up in media. I spent 18 years working in television, local news. And uh, ironically, I became a late night horror show host. No way. uh, Yes, uh, I have the, the distinct pleasure of being part of that odd fraternity of folks who've done that job. And it was a lot of fun. I was also at the time producing a local uh, segments for our uh, muscular dystrophy telethon through the TV station. So we did a haunted house as a fundraiser. And that was the first real attempt. I mean, as a child, my family and I, we would do haunted houses at the Halloween carnival and stuff like that. But this is my first real chance. So I did that for a couple of years. And then I came to Atlanta. That's when I found that haunted houses were a real thing. They were an industry. And I went to work for one. And before I knew it, I was designing for this chain of haunted houses. They were in seven or eight markets around the country. And uh, that's when I met my business partner, Billy Messina. He was in the film industry. We started working for this chain of haunts. And then one year they didn't open. And when that happened, we're like, let's do our own. And that was, you know, about 25 years ago. And that's how the first Netherworld got started. When you originally went to work for your first haunted house, what was your gig? Well, I always liked scaring people (laughs) and I I liked to be a haunted house actor. I enjoyed all that stuff. Uh, Since I was a little kid, I liked to dress up as a monster. When I was when I was I don't know how old I was when the moon was full, I would uh, put on a rubber nose and grease paint. And I told the neighborhood kids I was a werewolf and I'd go out (laughs) there and be lurking in the bushes. Of course, they never came. So I'd always wanted to do that. So when I applied for this haunted house, I applied to be an actor and uh, I went in. To interview and uh you know they were trying to get this thing open and they were having a lot of struggles and i was like oh yeah and i knew all about all this stuff and i'd done these other haunted houses back in tallahassee and you know by the end of the interview they're like hey can you come and help us build it real quick i'm like okay sure you know so yeah i was able to 
that helped them out in a lot number of different ways. That's awesome. So you've obviously had a love of horror from a very young age. Not everyone that enjoys haunted houses are horror fanatics, but there is something about being afraid that a lot of people really get into. Have you given much thought to the psychology behind it? Oh, constantly. I mean, to me, what a haunted house is, it kind of has to ride the razor's edge between horror and Halloween. I mean, too far into the Halloween realm, it becomes too, maybe maybe too kiddie. You know, too far into the horror realm, it's too, horror can be very unpleasant. You know what I mean? It kind of has to be somewhere in the middle that celebrates the season. It's something that's coming up. It's something you look forward to. It's this rite of passage, but it's got that little tinge of the unknown and fear. Now, thinking about how to scare people, I mean, that's something we do in this business constantly. The main things you can do, you can you do like the startle scares, a sudden loud sound, something flashing in front of your face, you know, literally an actor jumping out. That stuff is extremely effective. You'll see it on any movie, even the little cat jumps out, you know, and scares somebody for a second. Everyone jumps in the theater, the music sting. But then there's other kinds of things you can evoke. Then there's phobias, the things that people are afraid of. People are afraid of spiders. People are afraid of blood. People are afraid of the dark. So those are the kind of things that uh, you can also work on. That's that sort of dread. And also there's layers of suspense you can put on there. When you come to a haunted house, it's as though you're approaching a roller coaster. And as you enter the door or you're in the line, it's like you're going up that hill. And once you go in the door, you know, the ride begins and it's ups and downs and peaks and valleys and all these moments. So it, there's a lot of interesting emotions that go into that experience. My, my favorite thing, honestly, if, if I jump out and scare you and you scream and then you laugh, that's what I want. I want people to have a good time, to enjoy themselves in the attraction, to create memories. That's really what we're doing. We're creating memories. And it's not just a sole person. People come as a group and they all have roles in that group. You know, some people want to laugh at their friends. Some people want to look at the detail. Some people just want to scream. And everyone has their part to play. I love your example of the scream followed by the laugh. That does feel like that classic energy release that we look for from a haunted house. It is. I mean, that's that's what people like. In our modern day, you, you know, you're working, you repress your emotions. You can't, you know, you're not in that fight or flight circumstance. But to let it all out, to scream, to laugh uncontrollably, to have all these feelings, it, it's rare to have a moment where you can do that. And a haunted house is a perfect place to do that. So true. Do you tend to get all ages coming through or are there certain times that it's just not appropriate for children? Well, it's hard to say how a person is going to be affected by, you know, the experience of a haunted house. There can be some young preteens who aren't scared at all and they're laughing their heads off and there could be a 40 year old man who's curled in a ball in the corner. There's a, you know, everyone's a little bit different, you know, you cannot make a judgment sometimes just based on looking at a person as to how they're going to react. You kind of have to study them for a minute. And as a haunted house actor, that's what you do. You can kind of tell you're watching people, the people who come right at you, you know, they're not afraid. The people who shrink back are the ones who kind of, you're like, yeah, that's the one I'm going to get. But sometimes you want to go for those, the people coming right at you because, you know, we call that big game. You want to hunt big game sometimes. I'm really glad that you brought that up because I've wondered how the actors choose who they single out and whether or not they give any thought to if the person can handle it. Well, it's funny. I like to call it varying your diet. Sometimes I'll do uh, like what I call trapdoor spider, which is whatever comes around the corner. I'm going for it. I, and half the time, it's someone who works here. I'm like, oh, God, sorry. But, <laughs> but that's a good way to randomize it. Sometimes I go for the middle of the group. Sometimes I go for the end of the group. But sometimes you look at that group because there's different types. Like I said, you can have what's called the offerer and the offering. Now, the offerer is like, here, scare this person. And they're pushing the other one forward. The offering is the person going, no, no, no. You're playing a role. The offering may want to be scared or they may not, you know, you take a choice. Well, which one do I really want to go for? You know, I don't know. And you can kind of look at that dynamic, you know, as to who's doing what. The people who are very, very scared, 
of course, they're easy to scare and it's lots of fun, but sometimes they've already had enough. You want to, like I said, go for somebody else, because if there's someone in a group that's absolutely screaming, you know, the other people may not have gotten as many scares because this person's drawing all the actors, right? You want to go for that unexpected one and, and try someone else. If you're just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes, speaking with Ben Armstrong, co-creator of Netherworld Haunted House. There's such a large creative team behind Haunted Houses. We've talked a little bit about the actors. Can you speak a little to some of the artists that are involved? Absolutely. I mean, it is a year-round endeavor. We have all kinds of folks. We have full-time steel fabricators who are creating the uh, animatronics and the special effects that you'll see. We have, uh, you know, artists who create the monsters. We have people who create the costumes. We have people who design the makeup. And then there's a lot of other things that go into it. Uh, our particular attraction also has escape games. So we're actually open year round. So we have game masters who are here year round running experiences for people. The technical things behind it are massive as well because we will use projections, audio, all sorts of things, you know, to create the experience of the haunted house. And it is a massive endeavor. What type of warnings do you give people before they go in? The haunted house is are generally, they're safe. I mean, the whole point is for them to be safe. But, you know, if people are particularly of a very nervous disposition or if they're bringing with them something like maybe they were, uh, they sprained their ankle and they're on crutches, you know, yes, you can go through in a wheelchair, but you might, you know, want to consider what you're doing depending on your, your current level of physical health. Because it can be an exertion, you know, especially if you're scared and you start running. But, uh, in general, the haunts are actually quite safe, and we have, uh, you know, paramedics just in case things happen. Honestly, the biggest problem we tend to get with patrons are panic attacks. Some people will go to a haunted house and just not realize just quite what it's going to be like, and it can be overwhelming for them. Sometimes people drag their friends along who don't want to go and maybe shouldn't have gone, you know. Uh-huh. But that's the thing. It's really every individual is so different. It's like, what is your tolerance for spicy food? Some people like macaroni and cheese. Some people like a really 17-course Cantonese meal. You know, everyone's a little different. So uh, you definitely got to know you're looking for thrills. You're looking to get startled. You're looking to see incredible detail and an amazing performance. If that's who you are, the haunted house is for you. The spicy analogy is perfect because spicy can mean different things to different people mm-hmm. completely. So Netherworld... Have you always done different stories each time? Did it start as just one? I know this year you're offering two. Yes. Yeah, so the thing about Netherworld, when we first started you know, 25 years ago, most haunted houses were sort of just compilations of scenes from movies. Like, oh, there's a Freddy scene, there's a Jason scene, you know, just sort of disconnected moments. But we wanted a story. We wanted something, an interconnected theme that ran throughout the entire attraction. And as a matter of fact, it's run throughout the course of 25 years. It's an ongoing tale that takes different twists and turns. Now, along the way, we might have multiple multiple attractions during a season. There were times when we had as many as three attractions, but our standard now is two. So our, our larger attraction is one that's more, it's more Gothic and traditional with graveyards and haunted houses, but it also has this very deep, scary kind of H.P. Lovecraft angle to it where it's sort of like other dimensions and, you know, other worlds and huge monsters of, you know, unknown origin. So that's the main one. The second one is more of a science fiction feel. So it's got robots and aliens and all that kind of stuff in it. So all the stuff you'd expect from the two sides of horror, the sort of traditional and more gothic trappings, and on the other side, the science fiction trappings. And this year, there's two attractions, Rise of the Nether Spawn, which is our main show. Of course, we're bringing back a lot of the classic icon characters and a lot of the classic scenes that people love that maybe they haven't seen in a while. But the big thing going on is there's a massive storm happening. So when you come into this area, it's like a blasted town, but there's lightning and thunder and wind and rain and all this chaos is going on and there are these huge monsters that are rampaging through this because the creatures of the netherworld have decided they're going to take over and they're creating this storm as cover right so now they're charging out of their deep 
pits and caverns to just you know wreak havoc on on civilization. The second one is called Return to Planet X, and we had a show called Planet X many years ago, and it's a 3D show. Oh, I love that. Special, yeah, you put on your special 3D glasses. It's a it's a thing called chroma depth, and it separates things based on color. So there could be a flat wall, but with the way it's painted, it has multiple dimensions. So this show is very trippy. It's it's a lot about dimensional rifts and other galaxies. And so there's strange creatures coming from Planet X. The weird colors and energies of Planet X are corrupting the life forms in our world. So a lot of the creatures you would encounter in our second show have all been changed and altered and mutated by this color. So Mm. it's very psychedelic, very weird, and it's going to be an incredible show. Well, that one sounds right up my alley. I love sci-fi, and I don't know if I could handle the regular hardcore netherworld. It sounds terrifying. (laughs) Oh, uh, you know, once again, I don't know what level of spicy you like, but uh, you got to give it a try to find out. That's true. So with that in mind, can you just go see one or do you always see both? We've tried different techniques over the years to do that. This year, it's one ticket gets you into both attractions is the way it's set up. And with our new location, that works better because it's essentially a linear progression. You go through the first attraction and you exit into a large midway. And in that midway, there's there's games and there's food and there's photo ops and a lot of fun stuff to do and things to look at. You can catch your breath. There's monsters out there that you can interact with. You can take pictures with. And then you can make your way through that midway to kind of what we call our science fiction midway. And then you go into the secondary show. So you have a moment to take a break. <laughs> and then when you exit that show, you come back out into that area and you can take your time. You talk with your friends about what's what has just happened to you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's it. It's about that experience. And everyone, they come out, you're like, did you see that? No, I didn't see that. I was looking the other way. It's like, there's so much going on. It's, it's very hard for people to actually remember everything that was in there there's so many different scenes and so many different creatures and just and also when you get out you know into the midway there'll be a lot of those classic characters roaming around as well that's great and for anyone that just couldn't really get their head around why a haunted house would be on an arts program i think you've done a great job of explaining how many artistic elements go into it it's an incredible production it, that's exactly what it is it, it is essentially a massive theatrical production. Not last year, but the year before last, we had almost 500 seasonal employees working here. Oh. And like I said, it's years, year in the planning. There's so many other elements. There's food, photo ops, and we have a monster museum. We have a laser tag arena. So it's a full night experience. Very cool. Can you tell me a little bit about the monster museum? So obviously we collect a lot of monsters over the years. <laughs> What I used to find when we were back at our old location, you know, people would stop by the haunted house and you happen to be coming outside like, oh, can we peek inside? And you're like, ah, it's a mess in there. We're building. I'm sorry. You know, no, they walk away. Now what happens, though, since people do come year round because the escape games are open, they're like they want to see a piece of Netherworld or maybe they're just traveling. And they're like, I just wanted to see what Netherworld was like. Well, you can come in. I think it's five dollars to go in to see it. It's a couple of different rooms and featured in there are a lot of our collections. So we have a huge display case full of a lot of costumes and pieces we have for movies. We have a big display case filled with costumes from Netherworld. We have other sorts of collection. We have our Krampus collection of kind of, you know, the, the Christmas monster. You probably heard of Krampus. Oh, wow. Of course. We have a display of that. We have a lot of other bits and pieces. I actually have a lot of stuff in there from my house. I would collect a lot of monsters for years and I did, there's too many. So I put them in the monster museum. Now I have to buy more. So my wife is probably doesn't like my strategy here. But uh, <laughs> anyway, but there's a lot of fun stuff to look at in there. And there's also displays. You can hit a button and it'll play back a description of what the item is. So you can spend some time in there and enjoy looking at all these pieces. But it's open year round and whenever the escape games are. So you can drop by and see a piece of Netherworld. You know, if you happen, if you're out of state, you're not here during Halloween. You're curious. Just a little taste of it. Sounds great. Ben, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Ben Armstrong, co-creator of Netherworld Haunted House. The attraction opens next weekend and closes in mid-November. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, City Lights producer Summer Evans takes us to the Friends Experience. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Welcome back to City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening. The Friends Experience Immersive Exhibit, the one that set up shop in Sandy Springs in July, is coming to a close on September 26th. We sent City Lights producer Summer Evans to see what it's all about. You don't even have to be a Friends fan to know that theme song. But if you are a big-time Friends fanatic, then you're in luck. Welcome to the Friends Experience, the one here in Atlanta. The Friends Experience, a chance to sit in Joey and Chandler's recliner, sip some coffee in Central Perk, or pretend to move Ross's giant sofa up a narrow stairway while he yells... Superfly X, Warner Brothers Consumer Products, and Warner Brothers Television Group created this immersive experience. What we do, it's all about the fans. It's fans first. It's it's about creating a, a joyful moment. And so it just brings us so much pleasure seeing that. That's Superfly X founder and CEO Jonathan Mayers. He wanted to bring the experience to Atlanta due to the robust film industry we have here in the city, because it's truly like walking onto a movie set. When you first walk in, you're greeted with videos playing some of your favorite moments from Friends episodes. How can I be upset over something I never had? It's negative. No, it's positive. It's, it's not negative, it's positive. Are you sure? Well, yeah, I lied before. After a quick safety rundown and assurance that the place is Monica clean, you enter in the Friends experience with the infamous water fountain as your first stop for Instagram-worthy pictures. Welcome, welcome to the fountain. Ready? And one, two, Replications of the Five Friends signature styles are on display from Joey's suave, cool look to Phoebe's hippie, carefree ensemble. You can also watch video footage of how the show's costume designer, Deborah McGuire, decided on each of the cast members' looks. So I wanted to approach this project as a fine artist, and so I was going to look at this like I would a painting. So I defined each person by palette. For Monica, I wanted her to be very New York, and so many people in New York dress very differently than the West Coast. It was a very sort of darker culture. So her palette was black, white, gray, and burgundies and reds. Viewers can even try on one of the outfits, so to speak, by posing behind the Joey mannequin where he puts on all of Chandler's clothes and photocopies of the actual 18-page letter front and back, I might add, that Rachel wrote to Ross about the relationship, line the walls as you move on to the next room. Hey, listen, guys, we feel really terrible. (laughs) He's doing that weird eye contact thing. Don't look at him. Don't look at him. (laughs) Come on, you guys. We want you to know we're very, very sorry. (laughs) Right, guys? I feel terrible. But let's not ruin this day. You worked so hard. Let's move past this and try to have a nice meal all together. The floating heads do make a good point. Yeah, they do seem to feel pretty bad. So bad. So bad. So bad. 
set recreations of Joey and Chandler's apartment, Monica and Rachel's kitchen, and the hallway between the two doors immediately transports you back into the 1990s sitcom. Every detail is carefully thought out in order to make this nostalgic experience come to life. Even the chick and duck noises coming from Chandler and Joey's foosball table. You can even try your hand at Friends Trivia while you explore. Where did Chandler reluctantly take a plane to avoid Janice? Yemen. <laughs> it's Yemen. Because he was like, can I live with you? <laughs> okay, so you pick next. Um, who done it? Who did Joey break up with when he realized she didn't like his friends? Janine? Yeah? Was it? Yeah! Good job! And the piece de resistance is, of course, Central Perk. One of the guests, Shayna, said it was her favorite room of the entire exhibit. I feel like that orange couch is really iconic, and Central Perk is where they all would always come together and meet, and that's how they would resolve issues and come together for the show. So it's a nice homey place. Best friends Amanda Price and Lisa Hathaway could not wait to come see the exhibit. We can quote pretty much every line to every episode, pretty much, I think. How you doing? <laughs> Amanda said she related most to Rachel. I've actually asked for the Rachel haircut before when I've gone to get my hair done. I'm like, just give me the Rachel off of Friends, and they knew exactly what I was talking about. But when I asked many of the guests and staff who they related to most, this was the general consensus. Phoebe. Phoebe. Um, Phoebe. I like Phoebe. Phoebe because my life's always a mess. <laughs> Walking around, I couldn't help but wonder if people ever came to the exhibit dressed up like one of the characters. So I asked Destiny Gibson, one of the employees. Yes, that's how I know if you like Phoebe because the long gown, even like the, the bandana and like a cardigan. Someone yesterday, she looked exactly like Phoebe. I'm like... Oh, wow. She was really coming for the Instagram photo. Yeah. <laughs> There's also a community-minded aspect of the exhibit. A percentage of each ticket sold is donated to the Atlanta Agape Youth and Family Center. The center works with underserved communities by providing in-school and after-school academic support programs. Additionally, if you've got some spare change in your pocket, you can contribute a little extra to the center by throwing it in Phoebe's guitar case while you're sipping your cold brew in Central Perk. The Friends experience is in town through September 26th at Perimeter Point in Sandy Springs. That was City Lights producer Summer Evans. The Friends experience closes next weekend, September 26th, and more information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, Conrad Tao and Stefan Jackie. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thanks for joining us. The world premiere of a violin concerto by Conrad Tao will be performed by violinist Stefan Jackiev with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra this weekend. Both artists are among today's foremost contemporary classical musicians, and they recently joined City Lights host Lois Reitzis. Tao started their conversation by explaining why he wrote the piece with Stefan in mind. This, I think, is the third piece in which Stefan has played, in which I have written the piece with Stefan specifically in mind. And uh, of course, this being a violin concerto, this is perhaps the most front and center uh, Stefan has ever been in a piece of mine. And I, there are so many things that I love about Stefan's playing. There are so many things to love about his playing. But for me, his incredible sense of line and phrasing and this incredible um, and complex emotionality that I perceive in his tone, a tone that also is quite pure in many ways. Uh, and I don't, I'm not really someone who uses the word pure often as a compliment, but in the case of Stefan, the, this purity of his sound um, opens up all of this richness in the music. And so I, I was just, it is always a pleasure to write for someone like that. And I, with this piece, really just wanted to highlight that line capacity, not just 
of the violin, although that, of course, that was also very much motivating the work, but of Stefan specifically. All that being said, I also wanted to dig into some aspects of Stefan's playing that I haven't yet written for, namely that Stefan's got this gorgeous tone and plays melodic, lyrical music so, so well, but he's also like an incredibly virtuosic player as well, and is his capacity at the instrument, his ability to get around the instrument is just, it's, it's so wonderful as a composer because I really felt like I didn't have to worry about anything. And I, and I really wanted to embrace that. I, in the past, I have written for Stefan extremely slow and still music that almost is limiting what he's doing. There was a period of time when I specifically wanted to hear Stefan kind of struggle actually with doing as little as possible um, to see what expressivity came out of that. This piece moves in a, uh, in a slightly different direction. Um, the middle movement of the piece is in that much more internal, private, restrained vein, although even that movement is, I think, a little bit more forthright in its, um, you know, romance. But there are many, many, like, extroverted parts of this piece that uh, engage his, like, full body faculties at, at the instrument as well. So it was, this piece really was a mix of both highlighting all the things that I already know and love about Stefan's playing, but also wanting to focus on virtuosic aspects of his playing that I had not yet taken full advantage of. You wrote All I Had Forgotten or Tried To a few years ago for Stefan. How far back does your collaboration go? We first uh, met in 2016 uh, when we began playing in a piano trio together, the Junction Trio. And that's actually the bulk of our work together has been in the piano trio. Conrad, of course, in addition to being a brilliant composer, is an outstanding pianist. Yeah. Um, and so that's how long we've known each other and been working together for five years now. And it's it's really been my collaboration with Conrad, both in terms of playing with him at the piano and also working with him as a composer has really been a, a highlight of my musical life for the past half a decade. I'm curious about working together. You're working with Conrad as a composer. Stefan, I love your recording of Brahms' violin sonatas. Thank you. Such a warm, beautiful tone, Conrad said, pure. I'll second that. also a pianist, famously turned to his violinist friend Josef Joachim for advice about writing for the violin and the magnificent Brahms Violin Concerto was the result. Did you advise Conrad in the realization of this piece? You know, so while Brahms was an outstanding composer and uh, an accomplished pianist he was not an outstanding violinist he was Whereas not. conrad is an outstanding composer pianist and highly skilled violinist as well something that people may not know as readily as they know about his accomplishments as a composer and a pianist but he's a highly trained violinist played violin for a long time studied it very seriously so Conrad is totally versed in what's idiomatic on the violin and what works on the violin, what makes the violin shine, what's what's possible on the violin. So I actually really didn't have, there wasn't a single moment where I had to say, hey, you know, this doesn't really lie well in the hand or this isn't really idiomatic on the instrument. Every Everything that Conrad has ever written, while some of it has made, maybe had to, to, he had to kind of explain it to me, none of it felt unidiomatic. And just sort of like reflecting on kind of the fact that I, I've worked more with Conrad as a pianist just because we play in a trio together so much, uh, it, it kind of makes me realize that the, the qualities that I 
see in him and admiring him in our piano trio rehearsals when he's at the piano, I, I think are really car carry over into um, the qualities that I love about him as a composer and in his music. I think sometimes there's this sort of like tension or psychological tension or kind of interpretive tension between being deeply emotional and having a real sort of like structural rigorous understanding and um, kind of concept of, of how a piece is put together. But when Conrad plays, when he talks about music and also when he writes music, it seems like a, a real marrying of those two aspects. And in this violin concerto, I think there's such a beautiful form to it. The way in which it unfolds is so organic. The way in which recurring sort of motives are passed um, through the orchestra and also in the, sol sol in the solo line um, also really kind of tie the work together. But it's also driven by just such a kind of powerfully expressive emotional core. I think the slow movement is probably one of the most beautiful things I've heard for violin and orchestra. It's just like instantly lovable um, while never being sentimental at all. And actually, when I was talking with our conductor, Robert Spano, who is leading this whole project really brilliantly, one word that he used to describe the final movement, the third movement, which I think is perfect, is whimsy. And Conrad captures both the kind of the gravitas and then the soulfulness in the first and second movement. But there's so much humor and lightheartedness. And like there's some parts that just like make me smile in, in the last movement because they're just so playful and kind of cheeky even. You know, that's another thing that I, that I really love in this piece. Oh, wow. That's quite a tribute too because Robert has a wonderful sense of humor. And yeah. being able to bring that out in the music it is very special. You were speaking about this tender, dreamy quality of the second movement of the concerto. Conrad, I'm thinking of your 2009 piano trio, Desire Eventide. Beautiful. And then your music can also be extremely assertive. Listening to an excerpt from An Adjustment brought that home. Does the new concerto combine diverse elements of your style, or would you say it is more the dreamy second movement, the whimsy of the finale? It, 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 you, would you say it's more traditional? While writing the piece, I had a, one very specific goal that I try to approach in many different ways. But I write generally left to right. So from beginning to end, writing is kind of an improvisatory process for me. And so my goal with this piece was to really embrace that and to start, I wrote this, uh, the very opening of the work begins with these like 10 notes in the violin, these 10 dyads, actually, these little two note figures. And there's just like an opening series of 10. And out of that, the piece emerges. And the way I thought about the work was I, I wanted to see how far I could just follow the line down. So that was the only real specific conscious goal that I set for myself was like, just keep following the line, just keep going down, keep going and see where it takes you. And in a surprising turn of events, I found myself as I followed the line, as I followed the material, as I sort of just wrote from within, you know, at the end of the day, I'm just kind of writing what I hear in my head. So as I followed the material down, I found myself gravitating towards some very familiar forms, some pretty traditional forms. 
what we might call sonata form, but just the idea, the idea of the return of an earlier material that is now uh, newly contextualized by the journey that we took to get there. I, I found myself returning to this idea, this feeling, and after writing a lot of pieces that were, were a so-called sonata form was not even on my mind at all. With this piece, I noticed that tendency and I chose this time around to keep going and to not fight that tendency towards the, the familiar form, the familiar structures. And so in some sense, I would say that the piece is pretty traditional and in a way that felt both subconscious and conscious. I wonder if that has something to do with the fact that this is my very first violin concerto ever. I wonder if it has something to do with the fact that I did play the violin seriously for a while and learned pieces of the repertoire quite seriously. I think this is a big reason why the title of the piece is simply just violin concerto, because I've written a number of other works that all have titles in the past. That's about the traditional shape of the concerto. The concerto is also in three movements and it's sort of, I would not necessarily call the first movement exclusively a fast movement, but it the arc is a fast, slow, fast arc. It's fairly familiar as again. And then in terms of how it squares with other work I've written, it does, I mean, it really is. This piece does touch on a, a, a number of different aspects of my writing. I have written a decent amount of orchestral music at this point, and my writing for orchestra tends to be on the pointillistic side of things. Uh, materials and gestures, motifs, are often the starting point for a work, shapes, and these shapes travel throughout the orchestra, and there's a, a lot of, I, I sometimes liken it to a kind of pinball bounce. Um, where materials are traveling throughout the orchestra. I'm really interested as well in whether or not a line, a gesture, a melody might start out, say, as like pitches, perhaps played by Stefan, and then as it travels throughout the orchestra, travels into the percussion section where the motif re-articulates, but in a non-pitched form, for example, because I think for me, I'm always interested, like when I'm out in everyday reality and I hear noise on the street or I just hear you know uh, sounds in sequence out in the world a lot of stuff gets perceived as melody in a way and so I'm always interested in in the boundary between pitched non-pitched between tone and noise you know all these things are just perpetually interesting to me and I think that that they show up in this work the slow movement of the work was consciously written because I knew I was writing this piece for Stefan and I wanted to give him like a, a really good melody to, to sink his teeth into. I think yesterday I sent him the Judy Garland 1961 Carnegie Hall recording of Over the Rainbow as like a reference point. Today in rehearsal, for example, like Stefan described the movement as like emotional, but not that sentimental. And I would, I would agree with that uh, in that the movement is often very restrained. I am generally interested in how much feeling you can garner out of the most precisely chosen like points. Um, but there was one instance in rehearsal today where I just told the strings, like, here is your, these are your two bars where I really want you to go full Hollywood. <laughs> um, you know, like, and, and so, so there's, there's some of that in the mix, you know, I mean, I'm also like born and bred, not born and bred, but I've lived in New York since I was nine years old. So I'm almost born and bred. And I, I do, there's a big part of me that's like a show pony who loved show tunes growing up in the city. And, and, and so there's, there's a lot of different parts of me in the work. And then, yeah, so, so this does, this piece does travel a lot of territory, both I think within my own language and, and then also like uh, there is this interest in the violin concerto as a familiar genre. Oh, I think that range of influence is fantastic. I'm going to look for the pinball effect. <laughs> I'm going to look at the orchestra and imagine that ball hitting the various sections. But it does make me want to ask, do you two guys, your friends, do you play pinball? We have not yet. 
not together. I used to, I actually used to have a little pinball, like a portable pinball machine that my parents got me for Christmas many, many years ago. Um, it didn't make its move to New York City with me. But I, now that I, it's the first time I've heard Connor describe Moments of the Future as kind of pinballing, but there is that sort of like, kind of like joyfully frenetic element to some of the, the last movement that I, that totally like lines up with what I think of when I think about just sort of like the kind of unpredictable skittishness of, of pinball. Everything that you're telling me seems very different from the impression I got reading that this piece reflects experiences and soundscapes of the past year. I was expecting something very grim. Comrade, how did the past year's experiences make their way into this concerto without it making us want to be very sad and perhaps stare at the floor. I have written some music that I love that, that that makes you just want to stare at the floor. Just yeah. like makes you pace around with, with no end in sight. Yeah, certainly that's, that's what aspects of the last year have certainly felt like, right? Well, I mean, there is, that's the thing. So what I was thinking a lot about at the time of writing, I, I was thinking about how in the initial months of the lockdown period of the pandemic. Uh, so in New York, that really kind of all started in March. And I was thinking about how the first several months of that period, I certainly like lived online. And because it was a necessity, at the, it felt like a necessity at that point, it was the only way to stay really in touch with my family. It was the way to still feel connected to a larger community of people. So it felt like a necessity at the time. But it was also horrible and chaotic. And it's, I mean, I think at this point in my life, and also I would argue at this point in history, living online is pretty misery inducing. And I was thinking about how during that first few months, and I think it continues to this day, like being online is, is, is really a chaotic space in which on the one hand, you've got like these constant multi, multiple streams of information and most glaringly like a lot of misinformation like all kind of overlapping and flying at you and competing for our already distracted attention and so I was reflecting on the sensation of that I described the piece earlier as just being like this attempt to follow a line down as far as it could go and part of that I was inspired by I was thinking about like how difficult it was to find focus like real real focus in such a distracted and overflowing time and I think like many people I found mo much of that peace that inner peace and focus I found in time spent outdoors I found you know the simple practice of watching the motion of insects or leaves, or in my case, like the Hudson River, you know, be, being just, just a simple thing, the simple gift of focus. And so I think if the piece has a story, it is, it's kind of, uh, it's, an, it's an attempt to find that focus and it's an attempt to find that kind of simple joy. And for, so for me, that's what the, the kind of the search for the line ended up meaning to me and then the other side of it is like I, I think the piece was written with some optimism in the air for sure and underlying friendship or overarching mm -hmm. friendship exactly Fantastic. it was written for a person our conductor Robert Spano is quite the champion of new music and young artists like you too how did it come to be that the world premiere of this concerto would be with the Atlanta Symphony. Both Conrad and I have a relationship with Maestro Spano, having worked with him both separately um, at the Aspen Music Festival. That's where I first met Robert um, and Aspen, where Robert is music director, has sort of been a big part of my musical life um, for the last 10 summers now, probably even longer for Conrad. And um, Conrad and I have also played together um, at Aspen. So that's sort of uh, kind of where a lot of roads converged. And I can't remember when we first kind of talked to 
Robert about the idea of a premiere um, happening in Atlanta, but you know, I, I know that he's a big fan of Conrad, a big believer in, in Conrad, um, both as a pianist and as a, as a composer. So it seemed like kind of a natural place for it to happen in Robert's home. I think it is just a joy to talk with you both. I mean, it's great enough to hear you play, but this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lois. Thank you. The world premiere of Conrad Tao's new violin concerto, performed by violinist Stefan Jackiev, is happening this weekend. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Finally today, this year's Elevate Art Festival is currently underway with a new twist. Historically, each fall, the Elevate Art Festival has been highlighting art and culture in Atlanta's West End. But this year's festival is spread throughout the entire city, from East Atlanta to Buckhead to the Old Fourth Ward. The City of Atlanta Mayor's Office of Cultural Affairs commissions local artists to enrich their communities with artwork, outdoor performances, and music. Some highlights of this year's festival will include A Quilter's Legacy of Crafting for Equity by a Gies Bend Quilter, an interactive dance performance at the Atlanta History Center, and an outdoor photography exhibition by 10 African-American female photographers. Honestly, though, there is so much going on at this year's Elevate Festival that you really should check out their website for more information. It's elevateatlart.com. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., Hamilton cast members Jared Dixon and Keonti Thomas. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There, you'll find a complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzis. Summer Evans is our producer and Shelley Canavy is our engineer. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes, and you can follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Wishing everyone a great weekend, and thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.